It's been a rather difficult week for uh, the nation. Certainly, uh, many, many lives have been changed. Monday morning, celebration of Patriots Day in in, uh, New England. Both Carol and I brought up in that area and uh, how meaningful that is for us, many childhood memories and It's also the day of the running of the Boston Marathon, which has gone on for a very, very long time. And as I'm sure you're aware, that day of really celebration and community involvement and so forth was uh, tragically interrupted by the actions of evil men. And the nation grieves, and certainly the uh, Boston area grieves. Uh, In a sense, our innocence has been stripped away a little bit more. Who would have ever thought in such a a venue as that that something so wicked would happen? I think as you think about that, as the news reports continue to come out, we need to pray. We need to pray for the believers in the New England area. There are are believers there. And uh, it's a difficult area. It's a mission field, but there are believers there, and, and they are going to have frontline opportunities to minister the gospel of grace to people who have a lot of questions about life and eternity and why and, and so forth. So think of your brothers and sisters back there as uh, news accounts come out and pray for them, that they would be good and faithful ministers of the word of God in the midst of real tragedy. And beloved, how our hearts long for the return of Jesus Christ. This, um, this world is messed up. And uh, it's, it's under the sway of the evil one. And uh, that's not going to change until Christ himself returns and establishes his great millennial kingdom. We look forward to that. It is our hope. And it is in that kingdom that really the deepest longing of the human heart will begin to find its true satisfaction. That we will be freed from the bondage of sin that affects us all. Deep down inside, we know we are a very, very flawed people. And it will only be when Christ returns that the curse will be lifted, that the full bondage of sin will be broken, and that we will begin to experience life as it was originally intended and designed to be. So pray. Pray. And open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, and if we were to seek to summarize Matthew's gospel, we could summarize it in a few short words for you, and the words would be found in actually the 21st chapter of Matthew's gospel and verse 5, a piece of that verse, where they're quoting the prophet Zechariah on Palm Sunday, it says, Behold, Your king is coming to you. Behold, your king is coming to you. O daughter of Zion, behold, your king 
is coming. He's coming. And when you think about that and the whole triumphal entry and, and all of that scene, and then we think about what transpired after that and what has transpired in the last 2,000 years, there are questions that arise. I think any thoughtful person, particularly a person of Jewish background, has some serious questions that need thoughtful answers. We, don't, we can't just sort of wave our hand over it and say, oh, well, I guess that, you know, whatever. I mean, if the king of Israel is coming, then the question that, that arises is, what happened? Why was he rejected by his people? What in the world happened? We need to ask ourselves the question, if, if as in Matthew it says repeatedly that, that the kingdom of heaven has come near, what happened to that kingdom? What in the world happened to that kingdom? That kingdom that had drawn near. If Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the chosen one, and his, his followers, certainly his early followers, were Jewish followers. Why is it that the church is filled with Gentiles with hardly a Jewish person to be found? What happened? What happened? Prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus came to his people and he offered them his kingdom. He offered them the, the messianic kingdom, the one long foretold by the prophets, and through them that same kingdom to come to the world. If they would acknowledge him as Messiah, if they would repent of their sin and turn back to God. He demonstrated the authority to make such an offer by his his skillful exposition of the Mosaic Law recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He certainly demonstrated his power and authority to make that kind of offer with the, with the amazing miracles that Matthew records for us in chapters 8 and 9. I mean, clearly the, the powers of the age to come. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5 were on display for all to see. They were indisputable. Nobody argued that he didn't do what he did. It was clear. It was compelling. But by the time we arrive at Matthew chapter 10, something's going wrong. Something is going very, very wrong. It's clear by this point in Jesus' public ministry, a ministry of three plus years in duration, that that the wheels are beginning to fall off the bus, as it were. It is clear from the text that the, the religious authorities want no part of him. 
In fact, they are, they are beginning at this, by this point to, to create an alternate narrative. They cannot deny his miraculous power. And so they're looking for a, an alternate narrative, some other way to attribute what their eyes have clearly seen and cannot be denied. And so you see in chapter 9, for example, and in verse 34... That this narrative begins to grow here. The Pharisees were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. That's going to be their answer. We cannot deny what he has done. So we will will deny the source by which this power and authority comes. We'll attribute it to Satan himself. The crowds, they're not sure. They don't really know at this point. They're they're very, very unsure about this one. For example, over in chapter 12 and verse 23, we we have a a good illustration of sort of the, the thinking of the multitudes at this point. 1223, all the crowds were amazed They're amazed at what they have seen and what they have heard. And they're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're not really sure where to go with this. By this point, actually, they are also coming to a conclusion that that this is not the one But the problem is he is fulfilling all of the prophecies. And and so they want some help. Give us another another explanation. This This one cannot be the son of David, can he? The Pharisees are all too willing. They'll be the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. They are all too willing to spin that alternate narrative. Jesus will not allow... The multitudes to stay in this neutral zone. He's pushing them to make a decision. In the same chapter 12, and just flipping over to verse 33, you can see. He says to them, either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Basically what he's saying here is is make a decision about me. And become either a good tree or a bad tree. Make your decision. Decide. Who am I? Who am I? Now he's going to accelerate this process of drawing the, the, the multitudes, the, the common people, to the decision point here in chapter 10. And his strategy for doing this is, is, to, is to multiply his preaching ministry. To this point, Jesus has essentially been the, the spokesman. But he is, he is going to intensify the message here, and he's going to expand the reach and so he chooses 12 of his followers, 12 ordinary men, and he equips them and he sends them out into the villages and, and cities of Galilee to preach. 
and to perform kingdom miracles. And while they are doing that, he himself will concentrate his teaching ministry into the cities on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see that in in chapter 11 and verse 1. Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. He departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Whose cities? The cities of the 12 disciples. These cities we see a little bit later in chapter 11 and verses 20 and following. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Jesus is going to focus there for, for, for an intense time to draw those cities to a place of decision. So this is all about squeezing it to a head. Bringing it to a decision point. Who do you say I am? Now, the men that are they're heading out on this mission, are, are heading out on a mission unlike any mission before or since. Unlike anything before or since. These, these men are being hand-selected by Jesus Christ, Messiah. And they're being selected to be His representatives. His representatives. Ultimately, 11 of them will, will serve in, in a foundational capacity for the establishment of a, of a new people of God, drawn from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, uh, the church of Jesus Christ. They will, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, be foundational. That, and, that is, they and their teaching foundational to this new thing that Jesus will do. But here in chapter 10, and that's what we've got before us this morning, Matthew records the the commissioning of these 12 representatives. He records the equipping of these 12 representatives, and he records the instruction for ministry of these 12 representatives. So this is a very, very important chapter. Very important chapter. Interestingly, just sort of making observations about this chapter and its ebb and flow, is that a large portion of the instructions that are recorded here in this chapter, really beginning from verse 16 and on, contemplate a a certain time and circumstances that did not come to pass during their Galilean ministry. So this chapter is bigger than just the instructions for this limited preaching tour of a a limited duration. It actually flows from that and and out into the future. I mean, it's obvious, I think, if you you just take the time and kind of look at it. There is a change that that goes on here that is contemplated as, as occurring in this chapter. For example, in, in verse 6, chapter 10, they are, they are headed to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, the, the ones to whom they are going are, are called lost sheep. Now, lost sheep are, are helpless animals. 
They're, they're docile animals. They're, they're animals that are really on, uh, uh, vulnerable to all kinds of predators. And, and they need someone to go and to protect them. Lost sheep. But notice by verse 16, they're no longer being called lost sheep. They're now being called wolves. So that's a rather dramatic change of circumstances. Those who were once lost sheep are, are now being called wolves. And that's why I say there's, there's something happening or contemplated to happen. The unbelief in, in verse 14, where he says, whoever does not receive you or heed your words, that's unbelief. You're to, you're to go out of their city or that house and, and shake the dust off your feet. They will not receive your message. Just leave and move on. But by the time you get to verse 23, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. So it goes from lost sheep to wolves. It goes from unbelief to persecution. There is a very dramatic change of circumstances contemplated in this chapter. How do I reconcile all of that? I think the answer lies in in understanding that the the instructions that Jesus is going to give here are instructions that cover both the immediate situation, that is the twelve going to the the cities and villages of Galilee with the message that the kingdom of heaven is is at hand, and, it, and it's that, but it's beyond that. It looks forward to time in the future beyond that when they will continue to preach about Messiah's kingdom, but that preaching will bring severe persecution. As we work through this chapter together, I think what we're going to see is that it will actually contemplate a time yet future to our own. So it will be historical and future. And the instructions are all here in this chapter. So we're going to look at the chapter together in some detail, as you probably imagined. And as we, as we do that, uh, we're going to begin here in looking at verses 1 to 15. And, and 1 to 15 is, is really the commissioning of the 12. The commissioning of the 12. And and as we look at the commissioning of the twelve here in verses 1 to 15, there are, there are three really highly significant observations that I think we must make. Very, very important observations. And it's observations about them and about their ministry. So it's, it's something about them and it's something about the ministry that has been given to them that we need to make. And, and if we don't, then we run a serious uh, risk of misunderstanding the balance of the New Testament. So this is, what's at stake here is not just some academic curiosity. What's really at stake here in a proper contextual understanding of what Matthew is presenting is, a, is, a, is an understanding of the New Testament. If we don't get this right, we are going to arrive at, at some serious misunderstandings of the New Testament. Now, am I saying you can't be a Christian? No, of course not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if you really want to understand what the New Testament has to say in the unfolding of the message of the New Testament, then there are some very important things you need to understand that, that flow out of Matthew chapter 10. This is a big chapter. Because it's a big chapter, we're going to have to go carefully. 
And so what that means for us, at least this morning, is that we'll look at verse 1. I had every intention of, of, like, but you know how things are. It's like the chicken dinner at a banquet, right? The more you chew it, the bigger it gets. So, and that's what we have here. So let's do that. Let's just read chapter 10, verse 1, and a little bit of verse 2. So Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. Stop there. Now, we looked at the names, right? We spent a couple of weeks, we looked at the names. So we're not going to retread that ground. What we want to do is is we want to really consider carefully what is being communicated to us here in really just this first verse and a little. Observation for you. This is the only place, the only place in Matthew's gospel where the twelve are called apostles. All right, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. It's the only place where they're called apostles. They're called the twelve This is the only place they're called apostles. The obvious question is, what is an apostle? If they're called apostles, what is an apostle? And I'm glad you asked that question. Because an apostle comes from a a Greek verb, apostello, which, which means to send. To send. So apostles are sent ones. Sent ones. The, the predominant New Testament usage refers to one who is sent forth as a representative of an official. One who is sent forth as a representative of an official. That is the, that is the most prevalent use of the word apostle in the New Testament. Now, there are occasions where the word simply refers to a messenger. So, for example, we could uh, take a look at 2 Corinthians 8. You'll see it. And I think this is worth it. At first I wasn't going to do this, but I think it's worth it. So here we are, 2 2, uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. Paul's writing about some of his fellow workers and so forth. And he says, uh, verse 23, chapter 8, he says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are apostles, literally translated messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. They are messengers, they are sent ones of the churches. Though there's a sense in which they were sent out from the churches in in a general fashion. In Acts chapter 14, verse 4, we see another use of the word apostles. 
And it is, I think here it also has a general sense. Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd and crying out and so forth. I think there, in, in the same way, it is, it is a statement about Barnabas and Paul, not in their official capacity as representatives of Jesus Christ, but in their role as those sent out from the church at Antioch. And you will remember that there in Antioch, right, the Spirit of God says, set, a, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas and send them to the work. Okay, so I think that's what's being referred to there as well. So it's, a, it's the general sending. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the word apostle is used in the New Testament. It refers to the twelve. It refers to the twelve. Now, I've got to do a little math adjustment here, right? It refers to the twelve minus Judas plus Matthias. Acts chapter 1, verse 26. As supplemented by Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, I guess I'll, we'll look at that one. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and following. All right, so a little, little divine math for you there. The 12 minus Judas plus Matthias supplemented by Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 8. Paul's speaking about... Uh, him being added as an apostle. It says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. An apostle. An apostle. I am an official representative of Christ. Official representative of Christ. Now, it's also worth noting that the apostles were a, were a fixed group, not a fluid group. What I mean by that is, is that when one died, they were not replaced. They were not replaced. Judas was replaced because Judas was of the devil in the beginning and went to, went to his uh, just reward, as it were. So he was replaced with Matthias. Paul was added as one untimely born, one supplemented in. But from that point, it's a fixed group. How do I know that? Well, I know that because of Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Now at that time, Herod the king laid his hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. James, the brother of John, as you will remember, is one of the twelve. And yet there is no conference, there is no grouping of them getting back together, no drawing of lots, no, in any sense, feeling the need to replace this one who has been executed. 
It's a fixed group. And what that means is, as they died, the group shrunk until the last one died, whose name was John. And when John died, it's over. It's over. No more apostles. No more apostles. What does that mean? That means that today, in spite of what some might say, the answer is there are no apostles. There are no apostles. They are the foundation. When the foundation is laid, it is not relayed. It's done. Back to Matthew 10. Now, some ask the question, why 12? It's a legitimate question. Why 12? The answer to that question, I, I believe, is because there were 12 tribes in Israel. 12 tribes in Israel, 12 apostles. These 12 tribes are, are currently, according to 936, they're they are sheep without a shepherd. There is no spiritual oversight being given to these tribes. And so Jesus appoints 12 to act in that capacity. They are his messianic representatives to the nation. And interestingly, he tells them, and and you, you pick this up in 19, so Matthew 19, verse 28. You're getting a workout this morning, 1928. They're going to have messianic authority, a derived messianic authority, but they're going to have an authority to rule in his coming kingdom over the 12 tribes. Right? So we'll pick it up in 27. Peter said to him, Behold, we left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the regeneration is the, is the Another way to talk about the establishment of his kingdom. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I won't turn you there, but you could mark down if you want. Revelation 21 and verse 14 to see the fulfillment of that. So, why twelve? Twelve tribes. And these these. Men, and this is the thing that's really kind of mind-boggling. Remember, we looked at these men, and, and there was really nothing particularly outstanding about these people, and there were many things about them that you'd go, eh, I'm not sure I'd want them on my team. <laughs> they are going to rule over the nation. Because it's not of them, it's of God who chooses and equips. And that kind of takes us to, to the question, back to chapter 10. We are going to get into verse 1, by the way. Okay? It uh, takes us to, to a question here in, in uh, chapter 10, and that is how do you become an apostle? How do the 12 become apostles? Now, they didn't, they didn't answer an ad, right? Wanted. 12 apostles apply within. 
right? There's, there's nothing like that at all. In fact, it is just the opposite. They are summoned, and here it is, verse 1 of Matthew 10. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave authority to them. This is, this is a, the word summoned. It's a very strong word. It's, it's the kind of word that is associated with a king. The king says, you're going to do this. And you say, right, this is not open for discussion. You have been summoned by the king, and you have been made apostles. Now, this is beyond uh, the call to, general call to discipleship that Matthew records for us over in chapter 4 and verses 18 and following. This is a very specific summons, a very specific call, and it's the call to be an apostle. This is a call to be, to be an emissary for the king and to act in an official capacity as his representative with, with authority. And what is delegated to them here in verse 1, and this is, this is really amazing, what is delegated to them is, is what the Scripture calls the, the powers of the age to come. They are given the powers of the age to come. They are given kingdom authority. Kingdom authority. What do I mean by that? Well, go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 35. There's a number of places we could go, but we'll just go here. Isaiah 35. In which the prophet Isaiah writes of the, of the future day. And he writes of the, of the time of Messiah's kingdom. In which the the fulfillment, as we say, of the, of the deepest longing of the human heart, of that which was lost in, in Eden, will be recovered. And, and he says there's a day coming. And, and what will that day be like, Isaiah? Well, here it is. There's many things we could say, but verse 5, let's just take a look at that. In that day, then, the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, or the desert. That is the the creation that that has been subjected to the curse because of Adam's disobedience, that, that curse will be lifted. And it's representative here, but it's talking about blindness and deafness and, and, and being lame and, and mute and so forth. And then it's speaking about the natural world in, in which we have deserts and droughts and famines and all of those sorts of things. It's saying it's going to be reversed. It's going to all be reversed. So if there's, if there's no more blindness and there's no more deafness and there's no more lameness and there's no more muteness, and these are things that don't yield themselves to penicillin, right? These congenital uh, physical afflictions of which medicine, even modern medicine, is stuck before, humbled before, 
and Messiah's kingdom is going to be reversed. And if, and if it's sort of an argument from the greater to the lesser, if the, if the more difficult things are reversed, then clearly the common cold goes away. I'm looking forward to that. My allergies will be gone in the kingdom. Praise the Lord. It's a good thing. So it's going to be a day, a time, an age, a season that will extend out into eternity when the afflictions that, that, that harass us will be no more. So back to, to Matthew chapter 10 and let's, let's take a look at what Jesus says about this. He summoned his 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. Stop there. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. Unclean spirits, and a little later down, it it talks about demons. Verse 8. Same thing. Okay, same thing. Demons, unclean spirits. They have authority over the demonic realm. Humanity has always lived in fear of the demonic realm, and they should. It is powerful. It is wicked. It seeks your destruction. Those who are in Christ are eternally secure from that, but there is still a very frightful reality to the, to the realm of the demons. They're like Peter says, right? Satan is like a, a raging, roaring lion seeking to pick you off to devour you. And so Jesus gives to his apostles here authority over them. And look what the authority is. The authority is to cast them out. Cast them out. Cast them out. It's a very, very strong word, ekbaloda, to kick them out, to throw them out, to eject them. It's not to, to say, please, would you leave? Okay? It's to boot them out. To boot them out. And the demons must comply. They must comply. This is kingdom stuff. I mean, just think with me. Revelation chapter 20, right, describes the, the establishment of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, Messiah's kingdom here on earth. What is the first step that occurs in Revelation chapter 20? Don't turn there. Just This is your Bible quiz. Okay? What happens there? Do you remember? The first thing that happens is Satan is taken and bound. He's taken and bound and cast into the abyss. The Messiah's kingdom can never come until the rival kingdom is subjected to it, destroyed before it, put down. And so it is a, it is a taste of the coming kingdom. It is, a, it is a glimpse of the powers of the age to come when demons are, are kicked out of their human hosts. Cast them out. Verse 1. And to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That is a very, very broad application of power. 
Not just certain things. You know, they, they were, he gave them authority over just a certain things, right? This is the, the language would strain to try to communicate in any other way the, the widespread authority that has been given to these men. They have authority over the unseen world of the demons. They have authority over the world of sickness and disease. Not just some sicknesses and some diseases, every kind of sickness, every kind of disease. Nothing can, can stand before them. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And you know what else is, is really amazing about this? Is this is the first time in, in, in the history of the world that this has ever happened. The greatest miracle-working prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, have were given by God tremendous power and authority. But they were not able to pass that on while they were living. Elijah says to Elisha, if if you're there when I'm taken up, right, my mantle will fall to you, and indeed that happens. And Elisha assumes the mantle of Elijah and does some pretty amazing things. But Elijah and Elisha don't do it at the same time. One must leave the scene before the other can assume the mantle. That's not true here. Listen to me. It's, it's one thing to send out itinerant preachers. Like every religion does that. Every religion sends out their preachers, right? And they go door to door, and some of them literally go door to door. Or they're in the airports selling flowers. None of them have this kind of authority. In fact, they have no authority at all. They they speak their stuff, but there's nothing to back it up. There's no credibility to it all. How different it is to send out your preachers and, and to grant them the authority over disease, sickness, and demons. See, that's what makes this thing stand out and you go, whoa! This is unlike anything that has ever happened. Anything that has ever happened. There were authorities over every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Take a look at verse 35, chapter 9. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. It's the same language. Same language. That means they're doing what Jesus did. Now, there was a limit on their authority. There was one limit on their authority. Their authority was was 
did not extend to the natural realm in terms of creation miracles. Their authority extended over the realm of disease. It extended over the realm of sickness. It extended over the realm of the demonic. It did not extend to the realm of nature miracles. What do I mean by that? They're not turning water into wine, not stilling storms. Okay? Those expressions of kingdom power and authority are reserved for the God-man himself. And in fact, John, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, is very specific in saying, uh, listen, I've related these to you, these kinds of miracles to you, right, in John, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name, okay? So they had tremendous authority, but it, it did have a place in which it was circumscribed. This kingdom authority was limited to them. Now, there is an exception to that, and that is for a a short and temporary time. According to Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70. We're not going to preach Luke, but I probably will touch that passage later as to the significance of it. And they were given a a limited dose of kingdom authority as well, but it passed from the scene. It was very short-lived. This kingdom authority continues with these apostles. And in fact, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, don't just write it down. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the apostle Paul says that these are the signs of a true apostle. These are the signs. You want to know a true apostle? You need to look for these signs. That's what true apostles do. They have been given access to the power of the age to come. Okay, so what about me? What about you? No apostle. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. What do we got? Chopped liver, right? (laughs) No, actually, we have been been delegated a certain authority as well. Okay, and this is is really cool, I think. Just think about that. We have been been granted a a certain authority. Now, it is not an authority to, to access the powers of the age to come. I don't have that authority. You don't have that authority. I'll never have that authority. You'll never have that authority. It was unique. But we do have a certain authority. And and this is the authority we have. And it's really quite incredible when you think about it. We have the authority as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to declare to the world that they can and must be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That is 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, and beginning in verse 16. And this is, a, this is a very significant commission and authority that has been given to us. Paul says, beginning in verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore... From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer, well, because he's gone. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, okay, what is the ministry of reconciliation? It's namely this. 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has given us something as an entrustment, as a stewardship. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Because God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Okay, so we have a very significant piece of authority that has been delegated to us. And, and that is, uh, Paul calls it in another place, uh, it's, it's uh, treasures in a, in a clay pot. We have been given this authority, this message, this responsibility, this, this ambassadorship to declare to all men everywhere that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ alone. Now, we don't do miracles to support that claim. Because we don't need to do miracles to support that claim. Because when we speak this message, we are merely speaking on behalf of Messiah, and we are merely repeating what he said and what he did as recorded by the apostles and prophets. We're passing on something that has been given to us. The miracles already occurred. We are now merely witnessing Those miracles, we're not doing them, we're just relating them, recounting them, recalling them. You can see this in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 1. No closing song this morning, sorry. Luke's Gospel chapter 1. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. I don't need to be able to do kingdom miracles. Why? Because those who did kingdom miracles wrote down what Jesus said and did. And so now I just stand in the line of witnesses. Upon their inerrant and authoritative testimony. In the Bible. In the Bible. They have provided this written testimony, this, this interpretation of what Jesus said and did, this application of what Jesus has said and done. And their words, and this is, check this out, their words are more credible, Peter says, than anything you could imagine receiving through your five senses. Second Peter, chapter 1, Peter says this to us. Begins in verse 16. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, we were there at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We heard it. We saw it. But what we tell you is that, is that we've got something that's better than that. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter says, listen, don't ever say to yourself, gee, I wish I had been there. If I could have been there, my faith would be so much stronger. If I could have only touched him, if I could have only been healed by him, if I could have only eaten after he created food, if I'd have only drunk the wine that was once water, if I'd have only been in the boat when he he stilled the storm, all my doubts, all my fears would evaporate. I'd be filled with faith. Really? Well, what about all the other people who ate and drank and saw and experienced? What happened to them? Peter says, no, no, no. You've got something way more sure. Way more sure. You have the Word of God. You have the Word of God. Given under inspiration of the very Spirit of God Himself. You have in your hands the self-authenticating revelation of God. So, what a treasure we have, huh? What a treasure we have. You know, if you observe the miracle, it's sort of like done, right? It's one and done. The Word of God. You can go to it over and over and over again. You can read it over and over and over again. You can can ponder it. You can study it. And it And it will wash your soul. It will it will instruct you in godliness. The psalmist says in Psalm 13. 36 and verse 9, that in your light we see light. So what that means is is through the light of the Word of God we see reality as it is. What an incredible treasure we have in our hands. First John, the last living apostle here, he's writing near the end of his life, he He says the most amazing thing. We'll close with this. You want to come to know Messiah? You want to know Him like those who who were with Him? John says, come on. I welcome you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard. 
what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John says, listen, we were there. We ate with Him. We touched Him. We, we observed Him in the most intimate of ways. And, and God the Father revealed to us who He really is. And, and we have believed and we are now in fellowship with the Father through the Son. And we join you, or, or we invite you to join us in that fellowship. In that fellowship. See, because you cannot have fellowship with the Father outside of fellowship with the Apostles. That's the only door in. They are in, they're saying. John says, listen, we're in fellowship with God. If you want to be in fellowship with God, you need to be in fellowship with us. You need to to fall in with us. And how do I fall in with John, who died 1,900 years ago? He's left me the way. He's left me the way. So important. So important. Listen. I understand why people pursue the supernatural. The flashy. The Sometimes it's out of desperation. But that's no answer. There's no answer. This is the answer. Everything. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Everything necessary for life and godliness. Found right here. Right here. Christ gave those men authority to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and to support that with, the, with access to the powers of the age to come. And they have written it down for you. Join them. Let's pray. Our Father, the implications of the things we have been talking about this morning are, are so amazing, so deep, so profound, so revolutionary, so life-changing. That we could have in our hands a copy of the oracles of the living God. That we could read them that we could meditate on them, that we could discuss them, we could dissect them, that your Spirit would use His Word to wash our hearts, to draw us to faith in Christ and, and continually draw us to faith in Christ. May you help us to be approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed handling rightly the word of truth. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.